This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Wednesday, September 11th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I remember where I was 10 years ago today, this very day. In fact, there's a record of it since NPR aired a report that I did as part of a series about high school football. The high school team that I was covering was the Fort Campbell Falcons, located in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, though the base stretched into Tennessee. On this night, this very night, 10 years ago, I was listening to a retired command sergeant major, tough, seasoned, decorated combat veteran, scream his head off to a bunch of 16-year-olds. It shook the locker room walls. An army base is used to the roar of well-trained, highly skilled young men. On this night, the Falcons face the only other team located on a domestic military base, the Fort Knox Eagles. They call it the Army Bowl. All week, Falcons head coach Sean Burner has been reminding his team that this year's game is special because of the date on the calendar. You're not going to get another opportunity, guys. Seniors, this is it. This is your last opportunity to play high school football. And it's the last opportunity to play in this Army Bowl. And it's scheduled on 9-11. That should mean a lot to you, especially for what your parents do, guys. Make your parents proud. Every kid on the team, every kid in that school, in fact, had at least one parent in the military. And I was thinking about my time in Fort Campbell recently. And when I say time in Fort Campbell... How I would typically do these reports is get in on a Monday, stay with the team for a week of practice, and then cover the game they played on a Friday. The reason I was thinking about Fort Campbell is not because it's 9-11, not because of the wars in Afghanistan and inviting the Taliban to Camp David, not because football season started. Fort Campbell specifically has been in the news. Fort Campbell was on the front page of the New York Times a few days ago, and I will tell you why after I play this next clip from my decade-old report. The team runs an intricate no-huddle offense that requires each player to think on the fly. And the coaches know what the kids are going through off the field. Senior Chris Allen says the biggest difference between playing for a team that's on a military base filled only with military kids and playing on any other team is the difference between friendship and kinship. Allen once played at a public high school off base. You'd be down one day. not They wouldn't even know that your parents were gone. You'd be down one day. You'd be crying. And they just ask what happened. And you tell them. And they'll be like, oh, man, because they haven't heard it before. And they don't know what to do. And then they would just let it go off. But here, everybody knows how what the feeling is. And they know how to come for you. And it, it's just a whole lot better environment for this. Last year's deployments were worse than just frustrating. The father of Josh Carter, the senior leader of the defense, was killed in Afghanistan. Even though more than 200 soldiers based at Fort Campbell have lost their lives in Iraq and Afghanistan, this was the first time in Principal Dave Witte's four years at Fort Campbell that the parent of one of his students had died. When word came out uh, of the death, uh, within, within an hour, I would say almost every coach was at the student's house. Uh, they were there to support, they were there to work, they were, the kids came over and there to support and there to work. So it's a kind of a brotherhood. It was at least an acknowledgement that there would be sacrifice, but it would be shared. Now I'll tell you why Fort Campbell was in the news. 
Fort Campbell is the military base that has been denied a desperately needed new middle school. The current middle school is so overcrowded that some students have to eat lunch in the library. And the reason the badly needed new school won't be built, even though the money was set aside, is that $62.6 million allotted to the Fort Campbell community and their new middle school is being taken from them in order to build a border wall between the United States and Mexico. The thanks that the families who are the parents at Fort Campbell, which is to say the soldiers in our army, the thanks they are getting is that their kids will have to cram together some more, to have to sacrifice some more, as if what they already sacrifice on an ongoing basis is not enough, because our president could not, through normal democratic appropriations, fund his signature project. So that got me to thinking about Fort Campbell and a team, the football team, that was a whirling attack squadron. Now, the the current Fort Campbell football team, I just looked it up, is 0-3. But back then, they were unstoppable. I happened to witness the fourth win of a season that would become an undefeated season culminating in a state championship. So it was gratifying to be able to end that piece this way but also disappointing to realize just how much the sentiment that I expressed in 2009 no longer holds up. Using football as a metaphor for life is not unique to Fort Campbell, a place where they're resigned to the fact that life's harsh lessons cannot be stopped. But there's comfort in knowing that on Friday nights, neither can the football team. On the show today, I spiel about two rich men named Donald. But first, 30 for 30 is the ESPN series, film, and podcast, and they are now out with a five-part series about the LA Clippers, the worst team in the NBA. Now, you may recall that the owner of the LA Clippers, should we say the erstwhile owner, Donald Sterling, was caught making racist remarks on an audio tape recorded by his mistress, V. Stiviano and thus began the unraveling of Mr. Sterling's basketball holdings. Ramona Shelburne is the reporter who joins us next to talk about 30 for 30, The Sterling Affairs. Thirty for Thirty is the excellent audio documentary series. I, I hear it's also a video thing, but you know we hear in the world of the gist and podcasts like the audio. And their newest feature is a five-part series called "The Sterling Affairs," plural for a reason. It's about Donald Sterling, the former owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, and as you recall, the racist tapes that essentially got him booted from the league. There is so much more to that. It is reported by Ramona Shelburne, who is a great reporter for the NBA. You know, I bet you right now she has the contact number of 100 NBA players right in her phone and she could text all of them. But she brings these storytelling skills to bear on this fascinating winding tale. Ramona, thanks for joining me. You want me to do like a big group text? Is that that what we're (laughs) angling for? (laughs) <laughs> How many current NBA All-Stars are in your phone right now? Oh, All-Stars? Yeah. That's different than just players, because sometimes your best sources are not the All-Stars. I know, like Odin Polonies, right? Or just, you know, <laughs> literally like 
there's 12 guys on the team and sometimes your best sources are like number 10, 11, and 12, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, I have a lot of numbers in my phone, I guess. <laughs> but it's interesting. Like it's all the communication with players has really changed. Like even since I've been a reporter, like we always used to text everybody. Yeah. And now you kind of pick up the phone and call because we're in an age of screenshots. Ah. And people are hyper aware of that. When this whole thing was brewing with the Clippers, what was your beat? Sort of NBA west of the Mississippi for ESPN? I was working for ESPN Los Angeles at the time, which is, I guess there's still a website that says ESPN Los Angeles, but it's it's not really a thing anymore, right? I was just like the local LA-based reporter, but I wasn't even just NBA. I was like, I would cover the Dodgers sometimes. We, we, I had just got done covering the McCourt scandal out here, mm-hmm. which is, yeah. Um, so we were like in this era Parking of <laughs> very high profile, rich owners behaving badly. Um, Well, there's behaving badly as in financial chicanery and trying to show that you earn more than you do, which actually wasn't a big Donald Sterling trait. He actually had all the money. He just didn't want to spend it. And apparently, as we found out, harbored some horrible opinions. Now, tell us where you were when you learned about it and how big you thought it was immediately. Oh, my gosh. I mean, the Clippers were kind of like my first beat. So Mm -hmm. I was a little cub reporter at the LA Daily News. Nobody was covering the Clippers. And so I would say, like, can I can I go cover Clipper games? And they were like, yeah, sure, whatever. (laughs) It's the Clippers, you know, like for me, it was like really exciting to get to cover an NBA team. I was like, um, it was just great experience. And so I actually had been around Donald and I had been around a lot of the key players in this going all the way back to like 2008. So when Mm -hmm. this happened, like I knew everyone, like I, it was like an easy story for me to like jump into right away and call everyone and earn a level of, and I had a level of trust with pretty key sources on this. And I think that is critical when you're reporting on a scandal like this, because when everything gets really loud, people only talk to those that they know. They're not going to talk to like some person from TMZ or some like I I had heard stories that, you know, tabloid reporters were going on LinkedIn bios and calling everybody from the Clippers, trying to get them to open up and tell them things. right? And it was really like everyone was descending on them. And so, you know, there was a few of us in LA who had been around the Clippers for five or six years and just knew a lot of the staff. And we were kind of the only ones who people felt comfortable opening up to, but also like we had the human connection to it. Like I had been around Donald Sterling. And so I wasn't like shocked when he said those things. I mean, it is shocking audio when you hear it, but I was covering a game up in Portland. There was a, there was like a really long break in between the Warriors Clippers game and it was game three. So rather than just like sit around in the Bay area, I went up to Portland to cover another playoff game. And it was like, I was literally sitting courtside at the game in Portland while they were playing the Rockets and the news desk calls and was like, have you seen this TMZ tape? Have you heard this? What do we do? What's going on here? What what is? And I was like, I don't know. Send it to me. And I obviously, you know, I read the Deadspin article. I read the TMZ article. I listened to the tape, and it was like, oh my god, that he really just said all that. So I knew it was going to be huge. I don't know that I realized President Obama would be com- commenting on it within a few days, or that it would become the focal point or the flashpoint for an owner losing his franchise. When did that dawn on you or anyone else involved in the story? No, like, I don't think, I don't think we realized how big it was going to be. Like I knew it was gonna be huge and go viral. And there was a little side of me though. And I, and, and quite a few of us, at least who had been around the team so much, like 
because we knew Donald and because we had a sense of how he reacted to being shamed, right? Mm -hmm. Like publicly shamed. That never bothered him. This one of the columnists in LA, Mark Heisler, um, who was a longtime columnist with the LA Times, he literally wrote Dear Donald letters almost every week, every that were like, you know, just making fun of him, like lampooning him every week in the LA Times for decades. And it didn't seem to bother Sterling. So I think the reason why we didn't realize how big this was going to get at first, like that he would have to sell and all this is because he had been raked over the coals so many times and nothing had ever happened to him. So this was the beginning of it being a players uh, oriented league. And this was and this was the boldest thing I've ever seen a commissioner do. And his hand wasn't forced and he booted Sterling from the league. And there was plenty of opportunity to do that beforehand. There was just never the will from either leadership or everyone else around basketball. So when you're constructing a five-episode podcast series where each of these episodes are going to be big and long and meaty and they need to have structure and direction, you have to have a few through lines and North Stars. And one of my my biggest North Stars was why this scandal? Why this mistress? Why now? What were the exact conditions that made this the scandal that took Donald Sterling down and changed the NBA forever. Yeah, and also, as you say, there are two fault lines under California. One mm-hmm. is the San Andreas and one is race. And without that element, if this was a sex scandal, if this was a finance scandal, if this was a scandal that didn't have that element of race that just confronted the very players that Sterling employed, I don't know that it would have blown up so much. I don't think it would have. I mean, you did you hear episode three where I have to read that really disgusting deposition he gave? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, that stuff had been public. That was in like the Drudge Report back in the day. I mean, they were, there was no shaming Donald Sterling into doing anything. And there really wasn't an outcry over his housing discrimination settlements, his lawsuits, like, you know, really bad stuff that happened with previous mistresses. There was none of that. That never took him down. And I think, having grown up in Los Angeles. So I was here when there were riots after the Rodney King verdict. I was here after the OJ Simpson verdict. Um, I was here for a lot of that. So like, I felt that so acutely. I, I think that race in LA, like people still felt unresolved about it. There really hadn't like, you know, OJ was, OJ was not convicted. Right. And there was a big celebration in the African-American community and not just African-Americans, but like that was that was seen as like and, and ESPN did a wonderful 30 for 30 documenting why that was a, such a victory. Right. But there still were a lot of pe- that wasn't like a big citywide victory. Right. It was like there was a lot of conflict on that. There was a lot of division on that yeah. on that issue. On this, it was like universally celebrated when Adam Silver banned him for life. It felt like the entire city was getting a collective sort of justice. There's no way you can hear those tapes and not think he's racist. And then you dig a little deeper and find out about the housing discrimination and the what he had done to minorities in this city, all across the city. And it was like a collective celebration. Let's talk about V. Stiviano. So when you mm-hmm. were reporting on the Clippers, was it known? Did you know he had mistresses and this was one of his mistresses? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know V directly she was around all the time i kind of like tried to steer clear of sterling like Mm -hmm. he was just this sort of creepy guy that i just 
didn't want to have a lot to do with. I was just happy to deal with Andy Roser or Neil Olshay or Gary Sachs, who was one of the who was the general manager at the time. Like those were the basketball operations people, and their PR guys were great: Seth Burton, Dennis Rogers. There was Rob Reichlin, Joe Safety. Like we, you know, we we dealt with those guys. So Sterling was just like this icky guy that you kind of just tried to steer clear of. But like he was always sitting courtside with some like young mistressy looking woman right and Shelly was sometimes there sometimes not but it wasn't something like you tried to pay attention to if anything you were like averting your eyes yeah. um, I think the players saw a lot more because and you and you hear from them in this podcast because I think V was much more aggressive assertive publicly trying to assert to say like I am Donald's girlfriend. I am the, you know, I am, I'm here. And she would say like, I'm going to be running the Clippers one day. I, we didn't know that all at the time. Like it was literally like you just averted your eyes, but I think the players couldn't avert their eyes. Like she was just there. So this, there are a couple really interesting things about how it all played out. One is that it, it seemed like an extremely hard decision. I'm sure it was, but it was one of those hard decisions that once you make it, only resulted in, I'm talking about Adam Silver's decision Mm -hmm. to boot him from the league, only resulted in good things for Silver, good things for the NBA. Every other owner, you know, you replaced the worst owner in the sport, Donald Sterling, with Steve Ballmer, the richest owner in the sport. You immediately probably double the value of your franchise because of how much Ballmer was willing to pay. Shelly Sterling gets everything she ever had when she was the titular owner or owner's wife of the Clippers. Donald even made a lot of money. The player, Sterling bought such goodwill from the players because of that decision. It seems like a win, 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 win. And of course, the odious Sterling is out of the league only. And, and, I don't know, maybe this is um, merely uh, 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 an objection on paper, a hypothetical. I do think that there is something odd with a man having his property stripped because of the opinions he expressed that he might not even known were being recorded. And in that very set of circumstances was the adjudication, the official legal adjudication that he suffered from dementia. I mean, if Donald Sterling wasn't this terrible guy and you just gave me that set of circumstances, an old man suffering from dementia is secretly taped and other owners who financially benefit uh, strip him of his property, I would say there's something not right there. Yeah, and I think that there was a lot of owners making that argument. I could own an NBA team with this sort of thing. I actually, like, I remember having these conversations with Max Bleacher, who was Donald's longtime attorney. He was in his 80s back then. And Bobby Smini, who came in later, like, I I actually saw Donald's side of things. Like, from a legal perspective, Donald had a decent case. Yeah. But he was never going to win because Adam Silver had sort of these wartime powers, this executive order power to do what was in the best interest of the game. And I think it was pretty obvious that once once sponsors started pulling their their advertising from the league, once it was costing the other owners financially, like he had all the grounds he needed. But it was also like when you're an NBA franchise owner, it's like owning a McDonald's, mm-hmm. right? You and I don't know. Did you ever watch the movie The Founder? Yeah, yeah, what with about, Michael Keaton as Ray okay. Kroc. Yeah. Yeah. So when other places start serving, you know, they all want to change the, the the menu. They all want to like, oh, you know, what? I don't really want to do Big Macs here in Idaho. We want to serve whatever. Right. Yeah. And the idea is, no, you're a franchisee. You're going to serve McDonald's and McDonald's needs to be the same. 
in Buffalo as it is in Phoenix, as it is in Orlando. And if I get a Big Mac there, it's going to have the same sauce and the same lettuce and the same beef. And that's the whole idea of being a franchisee, right? It's the same in the NBA. And that is how you get to, Adam Silver gets to do what he did, which is we're not forcing you to sell your private property, okay? Legally, all we're doing is revoking your franchise license. (laughs) Right, right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And all they're doing is saying, you change the sauce on the Big Mac and you're not a McDonald's anymore. So you can have this team, you can call them the Clippers, but they're not an NBA team anymore. And therefore, we're just going to disband the team. Yeah. We'll have an expansion draft. Well, you know, your players who have contracts that are with the NBA Players Association can now find you in breach of the contract they have with you. And then they can be dispersed. They can be let go of their contracts and they can be, you know, free agents wherever they want to go. And that was actually the way they would have got rid of him. Right. And that was what Shelly Sterling looked at and said, oh, they're not going to take the team and sell it for us. They're just going to disband the team. And she said she had to, and that's why she felt, okay, we've got to sell. That is a good analogy. I would think that in that analogy, though, the Clippers are more like a jack-in-the-box than a McDonald's, maybe. (laughs) It is LA. Yeah. It is LA. And last, what did you learn uh, from doing the five-part podcast? Because you had reported it out so extensively. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what was new that you found out in the podcast? This is where I always come back to this moment where Julia Lowry Henderson and I, um, Julia's the, my incredible producer on this. And she would, uh, she came out and we would work really closely. Like I would, I would take like two or three weeks at a time and just like go duck out of my day job where I cover the NBA in real time and then go work on this podcast for like three weeks, like head down really <laughs> hard. And then Julia would come out, we'd drive all around Beverly Hills and kind of discover this like underground of people who are sort of rich adjacent mm-hmm. <laughs> that want to be richer. And, you know, there's a whole ecosystem of people who are, who are, who live in Beverly Hills, but are not actually wealthy. They just do whatever it takes to be around wealthy people. That was really eye-opening for me, uh, even though like you know those people exist. V. Stiviano is one of them. Um, I think I remember Julia finding the Alexander Castro case. And I had known Donald had other mistresses, but it wasn't until we started really reading those depositions and legal briefs and figuring out, wow, this has actually happened several times before that a lot of Castro's testimony in her depositions, she talks about just like the same kind of behavior. And then the lawsuit that Shelly, Shelly joins the lawsuit and they actually, it's a very similar playbook to what ends up happening with V. You realize like, oh, this wasn't just V Stiviano. This wasn't just this mistress. This was a pattern that Donald had had with many other women. I didn't understand that five years ago. I only knew the 30 years ago that the league had tried to get him out. But I think part of why we didn't know all that stuff is like when you just look at a mountain of bad behavior for 30 years and it's all like icky. Yeah. It's just easy not to get into the details because it's like you just mostly want to avoid it. Ramona Shelburne is the reporter behind the new season of 30 for 30. The Sterling Affairs told in five parts with a bunch of bonuses and more twists and turns than... Uh, let me try to think. Then uh, Baron Davis weaving through a full court press. <laughs> there you go. Thank you so much, Ramona. Thanks. Appreciate it. That was fun. 
And now the spiel. If you've been listening to this tale, this tale of a megalomaniacal, racially discriminatory, cheap millionaire who loathed being called Don or Donald by his subordinates, but loved putting his surname on properties. And if that reminded you of someone, well, guess what? It reminded Ramona also. The Sterling-Trump comparison is one, as her reporting bears out, one that was eagerly made by Donald Sterling himself. This is from the 30 for 30 Sterling Affairs, Episode 3. Sterling liked putting his name on everything, preferably in big gold letters. Sterling Plaza, Sterling Ambassador Tower, Sterling International Towers. When you look at Donald Sterling, you have a tendency to want to compare him to Donald Trump West. Sterling loved that comparison. In fact, he invited it. He wanted everyone to think of him as rich, powerful, and dashing. So in 1989, he hired his longtime friend, Michael Selzman, to help him spread that message. I got him on the cover of California Magazine as the man who would be Trump on the West Coast. There it is, California Magazine, July 1989. The man who would be Trump in big white letters. The comparison between the two Donalds is off in some ways, but in an important way, it's bigger than you may even realize. So, Donald Sterling was ruthless, brazen, and mercenary. But there is every bit of evidence that he was actually a true billionaire. His properties really were valued in the billions, and that was an evaluation that a fake underling had to browbeat a Forbes reporter in order to achieve. Sterling was also, actually was, the owner of a major professional sports team, not a USFL-owning Buffalo Bills rejectee. And he was successful because he was so mercenary. In fact, one way to, if not appreciate, then understand Sterling, Sterling's success is to realize that there is a bona fide case to be made that he played the NBA ownership game better than anyone else did. All the other owners were chasing championships. So that means they often spent lavishly and got losing or mediocre records. Sterling, on the other hand, would spend parsimoniously and achieve the similar losing record. If you step outside the mindset that there's a morality to the attempt in winning, that there is a virtue in striving to hoist a trophy, and you just think of the way to keep score as the valuation of your franchise, Sterling can be said to have played the game as good as anyone ever has. A rational economic actor would look at the NBA and assess that all the franchise's values rose as the value of the league rose. The value of the league would rise as franchises tried to outdo each other in building entertaining teams and interesting fan experiences because the fan experiences would drive ticket prices and that allowed them to pay higher salaries. But if 30 teams attempt this, 29 fail every year. The best outcome would be to win all the time, but since no team can win all the time, the optimal strategy is not to try to win, but to draft off everyone else's attempts and to see your valuation go up with a guaranteed low expenditure, which is exactly what Donald Sterling did. It's what, to some extent, the owners of baseball's Miami Marlins tried to do, what the previous owners of the Cleveland Cavaliers also attempted. It makes sense. And if you put aside the fact that Donald Sterling was an unethical operator in many, many, many other ways, this strategy, strictly speaking, is not wrong. Now, Donald Trump, on the other hand, has never been so clever as to get himself in that 
kind of situation where he could just sit by as his partners spend money and he benefits. Donald Trump is a man who licensed his family name to a brand of steaks for a million dollars, arguably devaluing his family name by much more than a million dollars with the failure of the brand extension. But what Donald Trump does, and here's where the comparison is really, really on target. What Donald Trump does and what Donald Sterling did was never take their eyes off the prize. And the prize is wealth. It's not power. It's not success. It's not esteem. It's not women. They both had a character failing for women. The prize is wealth. Both men live their lives to accumulate wealth. The Donald Trump presidency is best understood as being born of profit motive and conducted in a slipshod, haphazard, to-and-fro way that defies every explanation except for this one through line, the personal enrichment of Donald Trump. I'm not saying Trump's very good at it, just that no one has ever conceived of the presidency in this way. I mean, the founding fathers were worried about it, witnessed the emoluments clause, but Donald Trump is a pioneer. There are many different explanations for Trump's motivations. You'll hear them all. They seem to be at odds, but they're not. Let's acknowledge he's in it for ego gratification. He enjoys the adulation of the crowds. He can't help but lashing out at any criticism, no matter how small or how true. But the reason that Trump is in office is not for power or self-aggrandizement. These are abstract concepts for a non-abstract thinker. Everything Trump does is to make money. It's all he knows. It explains all of his actions. Granted, previous presidents have also had selfish motivations. But selfishness, in the case of those politicians, was a political selfishness to get reelected or to advance their agenda or their status or the standing in their party or of their party. Not Trump. He's venal. He wants more money. And if he leaves office more hated, but more rich, well, that's been the hallmark of his entire career, his life. And don't you doubt that he will tell us about it over and over again. He'll brag about how smart he was as evidenced by how well his business did as the result of him being president. And he will call his critics all bitter, and he will call us all suckers. And in this case, for once, he'll be right. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Daniel Schrader, who also has Olden Polonese's Blake Griffin's and Doc Rivers' numbers on speed dial. He also, it being 2019, uses speed dial. And if you have an impressive producer's Rolodex or simply want to acquire one, come join the staff of The Gist. The associate producer position is open. It calls for someone creative, bold, and fun. Slate.com slash jobs. The Gist. For years, Frankie Munoz was also our second biggest celebrity fan. Umperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.